She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium. Season 1. Episode 9. Wide Open. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and originally aired on Friday, January 3rd, 1997, at 9 p.m. The previous week, on December 27th, Fox reared the pilot parts one and two of Sliders at 8 p.m. and 9 p.m., and then ran a rerun of Gehenna at 10 p.m. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. Yes, they, it was, you know, a few days after Christmas, they weren't going to play anything new. So they reran a pilot of another show, hoping that maybe they would get more viewers. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sliders ran right before Millennium. Yeah. As it aired. So, yeah. Yeah. We probably watched that. I don't know. I don't remember what was on Friday nights, but it was probably reruns because of Christmas. So we were probably looking around for something else. I actually think when Sliders debuted, it was actually debuting in front of X-Files. I feel like on Friday nights that we watched something else at eight and then switched to X-Files at nine, but I can't Mm. remember what it was. So Cole, check the Night Stalker. (laughs) Probably not that. I don't know that it was airing at the time. Oh, yeah. I guess Um, that'd be like 20 years different. It might have been a sitcom. I do remember for a period of time we would watch Are You Afraid of the Dark and then the X-Files, but I don't remember if that was directly. You were probably watching ABC's TGIF Fridays I mean, and like Urkel and stuff or something. Was a huge fan of Urkel, 100%. Although I remember that being when I was a little. Well, yeah, but of Urkel, the character too. I was a big fan of him. But I remember that being when I was slightly younger, because in elementary school, I had like a book about like Steve Urkel. I was really look, (laughs) I was a weird, I was a weird kid. So I really connected with weird outsider characters a lot on TV. And Steve Urkel was one of the ones I felt like I was kind of a weird, nerdy outsider who was always picked on. So I related to that a lot. And so I like Steve Urkel. Anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Were you a Bobby Hill kid then, obviously, too? Um, I don't know. I mean, I watched that show when I was a little bit older. I think I liked King of the Hill. I don't know that I was super into Bobby, the character. Okay. Anyway, in this episode, someone is attending open houses and killing the homeowners. In the first, a little girl was seemingly intentionally left alive as a witness. Frank and the Seattle PD need to find out why if they hope to catch the killer. Ooh. Yeah, freaky. This episode was written by Charles Holland and directed by Jim Charleston. This is Holland's only writing credit on Millennium. He has writing and producing credits on several programs, including Profiler, JAG, The Quad, and Black Lightning. Black Lightning. This is the second of two episodes that Charleston will direct. The previous was season one, episode seven, Blood Relatives. And as we mentioned in that episode, he's also the director of four episodes of The X-Files, including Avatar in season three, and Toleco, Synchrony, and Elegy in season four. So we open, and we're in Seattle, Washington. And we see some kids playing American football in a narrow street as a car approaches. They stand aside as the car passes, and the vehicle continues and approaches a home with a for sale sign. It also has an open house sign and arrows pointing towards the house. So inside, the real estate agent is speaking with the couple. Here's a question for you. 
because I wasn't sure what term to use. I say real estate agent. Are real estate agent and realtor interchangeable? (laughs) That's a great question. So technically, realtor is a trademark and you have to be a member of the National Association of Realtors to use the so word realtor. So we don't know. Yeah, we wouldn't know with this character. Okay. It is the sort of word where people who aren't familiar might just call someone a realtor. And that's not like wrong, but it's also just like a trademarked thing. So the National Association of Realtors would want me to tell you that you have to be a member to be a realtor. Otherwise, you are a real estate agent or a real estate broker working for a brokerage, but you are not necessarily a realtor. Okay. I was thinking realtor (laughs) was something more important. They do use the term realtor later in the Mm -hmm. episode, but I was using real estate agent because I was thinking, I don't know that that's what a realtor is. So yeah, it's the same thing. It's just a a trademarked thing now. And I don't know when that happened or whatever. Obviously people use the word all the time. And if you're not familiar with the industry, you wouldn't really know the difference. Gotcha. Okay. So we may go back and forth depending on what's written in this summer. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. Okay. I have done my due diligence to inform you of the situation. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Now, you know, and knowing is half the battle. Yep. (laughs) So to continue inside the house, the real estate agent is speaking with a couple As the man from the car enters, she speaks with him and lets him know there's some information on the table and ask him to sign in. He signs the name John Allworth. So then we see Allworth enter what is obviously a child's bedroom. And he looks around and he opens the closet and looks inside. And then he kind of gets like flashes of a child screaming in like a small opening, possibly like a vent, but it's uncovered. But then we see flashes of like slats or blinds or like, you know, the vent cover. And then also like shadows on the wall. That would be like if you you shone light through a vent. And then the child is screaming the whole time. And we see there seems to be a figure outside the slats also. And maybe the kid is hiding from the figure. We actually don't know. The cuts are like super quick and rapid. It's hard to tell what's really going on. But whatever it is, doesn't look good. Uh -uh. So Allworth is brought out of the flashes by voices approaching the room. It's the agent with the couple. And they enter the room and the agent tells them, and this is the second upstairs bedroom. But Allworth doesn't seem to be in the room. He's gone. And the closet door is just slightly ajar. Good thing they didn't want to see what the closet looks like, I guess. I know. which, Or maybe maybe bad thing they didn't want to see what the closet looks like. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is now night and outside the home, we can clearly see the realtor sign. And it says the company is Emerald Shore Realty. And the agent's name is Beverly Bunn. Inside, Bunn is speaking with the couple who is selling the house and their young daughter runs upstairs. The little girl enters her room and it is dark. She switches on a small lamp and goes to her closet. She opens the door and reaches into the dark closet and removes a white stuffed bear from a shelf and then closes the closet door. Let me see a home security panel that reads ready. And the husband, John Highsmith, is entering what is honestly an extremely long code. He's just pushing buttons forever. And his wife, Mary Kay, asks if he's coming up. And he says he will, but he wants to go over the figures again. So he finishes typing in the code, and the panel reads armed, and then says all secure. So upstairs, Mary Kay is kissing their daughter, Patricia, goodnight. And she tells her that she loves her and tells her to sleep well. And then when she stands up, 
we see that all worth is behind her <gasps> oh no downstairs john highsmith is running figures on an editing machine and he hears mary Kay call his name she's like john and he's like i'll be right there and then she says john again later but it's louder and with more urgency possibly fear and then he's like mary Kay," and then a scream rips through the home and he calls her name as he runs upstairs and we see the security system says armed all secure and then we go into the main titles yeah that's scary and then we come back and we have an epigraph and it says his children are far from safety they shall be crushed at the gate without a rescuer and this is from job 5 4 so again this one doesn't seem to match any published translation exactly additionally this particular verse when you're reading through the translations the intent seems to vary depending on which translation you read some of them read just as statements some of them read as predictions and some of them read as threats this one has a nice king james version vibe to it although like the new king james version which is his sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no deliverer. It feels more like King James version, including like formatting it as like three lines of verse. than the actual King James version does, which is actually just a sentence and says his children are far from safety and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. It's like the King James version actually feels like less King James than like the non King James version. It's kind of <laughs> weird. So they did a good job on this one. So, all right. Good work. Yeah. So then it's a rainy Seattle morning, and the Highsmith home is surrounded by the red and blue of police cars and yellow crime seed tape. And Frank Black pulls up in his red Jeep Cherokee. And he stops to look at the sale sign before entering. And then when he gets to the door, he, there's like, you know, a bunch of those paper blue booties that they often have when you're selling a home. And so he pulls those over his shoes. And then on a rug in front of the fireplace, you can see the shape of two bodies and they're under this white sheet. So clearly they have those booties when you go see a house. Yeah, usually. Oh, I just I just assumed those were a crime scene thing. No, okay. I mean, I, I, they might be from showing the house because people who are selling their house usually have the carpets professionally cleaned and don't want people uh, tracking stuff. Don't want, you're not going to be like, hey, can you please take your shoes off before you come in the house? And some people will ask you to take your shoes off or put booties on. It's kind of your choice. Okay, I did not even think other. about that yeah. as a real estate thing. I just yeah. assume like, wow, they're really like, like, you know, everybody's wearing gloves and stuff. And like, yeah. you see Bletcher later, he's wearing those booties. I just figure it was a crime scene thing. No, most of the time, like someone, you know, either the real estate agent or like my company, the person who puts the key box on the door also brings like a box of booties. And so, oh, yeah, learn something, learn standard, something. Standard. <laughs> We're going to learn a lot of real estate stuff in this episode. People. <laughs> yeah. Real estate is my job. I'm not a real estate agent. I'm technically a licensed agent, but I work behind the scenes. I don't do the whole like take on client stuff. I help agents who have clients. Scenes. She does the real so stuff. Agents who have clients, I do a lot of the work behind the scenes to get homes on the market. Tori pulls job. the strings. I do. I pull a lot of strings. I do a lot of scheduling. Puppet master. A lot of rescheduling. <laughs> a lot of stuff. Yeah. But like I do a lot in data entry and stuff. So I do a lot of that kind of thing. Real you're not making it sound as cool as saying you're the puppet master tori yeah so, i mean it is cooler to say i'm the puppet master i wouldn't i wouldn't yeah. know if that's an accurate description of what i do but i i like my job it's fun i try i try 
And then we see two bloodstains are visible and the screen of the fireplace has been knocked aside from the fireplace behind them. Bob Bletcher comes downstairs and he's wearing gloves and the blue booties and he's writing in a notebook and Frank greets him and Bob's like, do you see this on the news? And Frank says he did. And he came by to see what he didn't see on the news. So Bob gives him the rundown. It's a young couple bludgeoned, dragged downstairs, murdered with an antique hatchet. No sign of forced entry, nothing broken, nothing rifled through or stolen, except. And Frank crouches down beside the bodies and Bob crouches down too. And he tells Frank their little girl is missing. Frank is like, what? And Bob's like, yeah, that wasn't on the news either. And then Giebelhaus enters and the bloody axe is in a large evidence bag. And he says, $5,000 alarm system as he hands the bagged axe to Frank. Should have saved the money and bought a Rottweiler. And Frank touches the evidence bag and he has those flashes that he has. And he sees the struggle and he sees John Highsmith's face being held by a bloody gloved hand. As well as what seems to be the view from inside a vent shaft. And someone standing against the wall in front of it holding the vent cover. And in the flashbacks, he can hear both John and Mary Kay crying out. So Frank asks about the response time. Bob says the alarm company claims five minutes, but they're checking that out. So they both like stand up straight and Frank hands the evidence bag back to Giebel House. And Frank says the house was for sale because he saw the sign out front. And Bob says, yeah, they had an open house yesterday. The real estate agent is coming down to talk to them. So Frank walks around the covered bodies and he's looking at them. And he tells Bob the killing was premeditated. The killer most likely came to the open house and hid someplace until the family returned. He set the alarm off when he left. Bob asks about the little girl. Frank shakes his head and sighs. He looks away from the bodies. And then he sees something and he goes over and he picks up Patricia Highsmith's white stuffed bear from the floor. And it's at the edge of the stairs. And he holds it and he looks at the bear. And then he hears a noise that sounds like whimpering. He sees a large vent on the wall, but it's like under a side table. So he slides the table away and looks through the vent. And then he says he needs a screwdriver right now. So Bob hands him one and he unscrews the panel. And inside, he finds Patricia Highsmith all huddled up. And Bob tells him to get the ERT in there right now. Yeah, so Frank tries to get her to come out. But when he reaches for her, she cowers away from him. And so, like, he's, you know, no one's going to hurt you. You know, no one's going to hurt you, sweetheart. It's fine. And he's eventually able to reach in and lift her out. And he holds her in his arms. And he softly repeats that no one is going to hurt her, that they're there to help. And then we see Patricia sleeping in a bed in a child's ward. Bob is standing beside her bed and Frank is also in the room. He's kind of standing back a little bit. And then we see Catherine enter. And in hushed tones, Catherine asks how she is. And Frank says that they say she'll be fine. There's no evidence of physical harm aside from extreme shock. And then Patricia wakens and she reacts to Bob being so close to the bed and kind of like, you know, cowers a little bit. And Catherine tries to reassure tells her that she's in a safe place and no one is going to hurt her and patricia's trembling and she's looking at bob and bob tries to give that you know like feeble smile kind of thing you do when like you don't know what to do to help mm -hmm. someone kind of thing and Catherine asks one of them to get a nurse and so frank hands off to do so then Catherine pulls bob aside from patricia's bed 
And she's like, you can't expect too much, Bob. And so they have a discussion about Patricia being the only witness. And Catherine tells Bob that asking her to talk about it will be like asking her to relive it. And she understands that they need to find the killer, but they can't do so at the expense of Patricia. And Catherine tells him they can't push her. She has to do it when she's able to do it, if she's ever able to do it. And he's like, well, we have a department shrink on call. And she's like, don't let the department make a mistake on this. This is already something this little girl is going to have to live with for the rest of her life. And he's silent. And he just looks over at Patricia, who is still like trembling in the bed. So it goes on for quite a while. They go back and forth a little bit. Obviously, you know, he wants to interview her to find out what's going on because she's the only witness. But little kid, you don't want to traumatize her. So Yeah, exactly. It's a fine line to walk and probably not an easy one. Yeah. So then we get a rainy establishing shot of the Seattle Public Safety Building. And there's no screen legend telling us it's Seattle's Public Safety Building because they figure like, oh, come on, you know what it is already. We don't need to tell you. So. <laughs> and yet four seasons into the X-Files, they're still telling us <laughs> FBI headquarters. So I don't know. <laughs> well, that's because they don't always use the same building. That's why. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a photocopy of the open house sign is being projected up on a screen. And Abraham Lincoln, Elvis Presley, and Muhammad Ali are among the sign-ins for the viewing. So that's cool. Yeah, that's pretty common. People, especially nowadays, getting people to give you their real information because they know, like, they know that you're going to use it to call them, right? And, like, Mm -hmm. generally, real estate agents just want feedback. But, like, some companies are more ruthless or, you know, once you're on someone's list, who knows? So people don't. And we've talked about this before. I don't remember. It was on one of the these patron episodes or in an actual x-files episode but we've talked before about how like a lot of people like just they like to go to open houses just look around at people's houses yeah if you're in the neighborhood a lot of neighbors will come by just to see what the house looks like or like if you're just walking by i mean you know that's kind of the point of an open house and sometimes people walk in see the house and go oh my gosh i really need this you know it does happen but a lot of times people just come in and they just want to look around which i like looking around at houses too that's why i like real estate and we should mention these houses (laughs) You could probably say uh, they are almost mansions. They are gigantic. Oh, yeah. And, and there's like these are very wine nice. and cheese at these viewings. So it's like, holy crap. So you just go there and get some, get drunk and eat a bunch of cheese. Who knows? <laughs> so. Yeah. Go get some free wine and cheese and look around. They don't, <laughs> most open houses don't do food anymore because of COVID. Although even before that, it was pretty not, not super common. Yeah. But. Anyway, so James Glenn who seems more likely a Millennium Group member than a Seattle PD guy. Unfortunately, this is the only episode he ever appears in, so we never know. But through the episode, you kind of get the feeling he's probably Millennium Group. So he tells them he doubts that either of those signatures are the viable suspects. So can't pin this one on Abraham Lincoln. Too bad. (laughs) Bob says they should still put an APB on Elvis anyway, just in case. (laughs) Frank asks if he found anything useful. And Glenn says that one name appeared at the first open house they held at that home two weeks ago. And Frank is like, he was casing. So then Glenn goes over a bunch of like handwriting analysis stuff. And he basically sums it up saying like, whoever signed this, they're deliberate and they have focus, but those are to contain their rage or their anger. And Bob is like, well, even if this is our guy, it's likely an alias, and the address he gave is probably fraudulent. And Glenn says, that's highly likely, but not necessarily. So Frank says, even if it's not his real name, it may be the name of someone he knows or who knows him. He left a child alive for a reason. He signed his name, John Allworth, for a reason. 
They'll catch him if they can figure out what that reason is. Gotta get inside his head, man. So then we're in the Beacon Hill District. Which apparently is not the best side of Seattle. Looking at the... <laughs> I mean, it's it's fine. It's nothing special. Uh, it depends on where you are, I guess. Maybe it's been gentrified since the late nineties. Who knows? So, <laughs> so Gable House knocks on a door, and there's no answer. He tells the officer with him to see if the manager lives in the building. The officer leaves, but Gable House mutters that there's a fat chance of that. Yeah, because slum lords usually don't live in their slums. So. Yeah. And the door he was knocking on was unit 440. So then he goes to 444 and knocks on that door. And an old man opens the door. Giebelhouse introduces himself and he asks if he knows his neighbor, John Allworth. And the old man is like, who? And Giebelhouse repeats, John Allworth, he lives next door. And the old man is like, he does? Like, he doesn't know his neighbor and he asks what's going on. As Giebelhouse explains what's going on, we get the POV through the people from across the hall, possibly unit 442. The angle is weird and the door's off to the side. Uh, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be 442 that we're looking through. When we get the shots of Giebelhouse talking to the guy, we see the door and it says 442. But like I said, it's off to the side and it's kind of the angle's weird. So it wouldn't be directly behind him. But then right. it actually is supposed to be directly behind him later. So I'm not sure. So, yeah, number wise, it would probably be more likely for it to be 446 because it seems like they're skipping odd numbers because they were doing 440. So the opposite should be 442 and then 444 and then 446. But I don't know. So, yeah. So through the people, we see the old man close his door and then Giebel House approaches the door that we're getting the people vision through and we can hear a heartbeat. Giebelhaus knocks and he tries to look through the people because obviously, you know, I guess that's what you do, but like he can't see through it. And he's mm. unaware that there's an eye watching him on the other side. <gasps> so he gives up and leaves. And then the eye recedes away from the people into the dark room. Whoa. Yeah, crazy. It's commercial. So then we see James Glenn putting up another sign-in sheet on the overhead. This one is from Rocky Point Real Estate. And he tells them there were 4,900 open houses in King County in the last six months. Graphological analysis matches the perpetrator's signature to at least 37 sign-ins using the names John Allworth, Travis Bickle, and Rudyard Holmbast. And Giebel House is like, Rudyard Holmbast? And Glenn is just like, that's correct. And then Giebelhaus is like, so we're supposed to go knock on his door too? And Frank says there are over 30 houses that he didn't choose for one reason or another. If they find the reason, find the pattern, it moves them closer to the killer. Again, gotta get his head, man. Hmm. Bob is like, what if it was just random? What if he just chose them because it was like the most convenient? And Frank says, well, then that will tell them something too. And Bob says he thinks they're wasting their time with this approach. And Frank's is like, well, we don't have anything else to go on. And Bob says they have the little girl. And Frank is just like, and he leaves. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So then we're at Reynolds Memorial Hospital in the Children's Psychiatric Unit. 
and we see Patricia and Catherine are drawing with crayons and Patricia is just drawing like this heavy layer of multicolored scribbles. Like there's just, she's putting the crayons over crayons. It's just wax on the paper. And Catherine tells her that's very good. And she's like, is that a face in there? And Patricia doesn't answer. So Catherine's like, you hid that in there. You're a clever girl. And she doesn't answer, just doesn't give eye contact, just kind of keeps scribbling on her page. Yeah, I slid that Jurassic Park reference in there just for you. <laughs> Thanks. I was going to say, I can't, I can't hear that. I can't hear clever, clever girl without thinking yeah, of the I, kitchen in Jurassic she doesn't Park. Say clever, she doesn't say clever girl, but it's the same implication. She says, I can't remember exactly what word she uses, but yeah. Yeah, I can't help thinking about Velociraptors when I hear that. So <sighs> anyway. Velociraptors just needed crayons and they would have been fine. That's all they needed. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just need to give them some crayons and they wouldn't have murdered everyone that they could get their hands on or their claws. I mean, is it murder if you're going to eat them? I mean, I mean I, yeah, I guess animals can't murder. Is there ill intent? or animals. So, but they, no. they do kill aggressively. So Catherine asks Patricia if she wants to see what she brought her. And Patricia looks up. So this is at least intriguing to her. And so mm -hmm. Catherine gets something out of her bag and she tells Patricia it's for her hair. It's from a little girl who's almost the same age as Patricia. Her name is Jordan. Catherine says when she told Jordan about her, she asked her if her hair was pretty. And Catherine told her it was long and straight and beautiful. And Jordan was jealous because she has curly hair and she wants it to be straight. But then she says she bets that Patricia wants curly hair, doesn't she? And Patricia gives kind of a shy smile. So probably, yeah, because you always want the hair you don't have, right? Especially if you're a little kid. Well, I don't know. I mean, I always want my hair super thick and everyone's always like, oh, that would be so great. And I'm like, no, it's awful. It's, it's miserable. It takes, it's like hard to style. It's hard to do anything with. And then it just like sheds everywhere like a dog. It's not good. I wish I had thinner, finer hair, but people with thin, finer hair are like, no. So anyway, <laughs> the hair is always greener on the other person, I guess. So then she asked Patricia if she can put this in her hair and it's a pink bow is what she has pulled out. And Catherine puts it in her hair and she tells her it's pretty. And then Patricia says she wants to go home. Catherine tells her that she knows, but she has to stay there because everyone wants her to be safe. Catherine then suggests they do some more crayons. And she tells her that she's going to draw a picture of a pretty little girl with a pink bow. Patricia does oh. not honestly look that impressed. <laughs> no, because she just wants to go home. Yeah. Yeah. So back at the Highsmith house, Bob and Frank enter. And Bob is like, what are we going to find here? They're like an army of text mist. And Frank says, maybe nothing. And then he heads upstairs. The Bob sighs and he throws a wad of yellow police tape onto a side table and falls. Because obviously he had to pull all the police tape down to get in. So they go into Patricia's room and the room is a bit disarrayed. Some of the pictures on the wall are tilted. The bedclothes are all asunder. There's some lamps knocked over. And then Frank gets flashes of Patricia screaming and he looks over at a dresser and he sees an knocked over lamp near a TV. He stands the lamp up and there are some cables on top of the dresser as well near the TV. So he holds up a set of RCA cables and he says the killer may have taken something. And Bob is like a VCR. And Frank says, maybe. And Bob's like, man, Frank, that's like cat burglar stuff. 
But Frank just, you know, leaves, goes out into the hallway and he's looking around. And in this wardrobe cabinet in the hallway, he pulls out a camcorder box and he hands it to Bob. And Bob is like, it's empty. And Frank says, yeah. So mm -hmm. mm -hmm. took a VCR and a camcorder. So in a dark apartment that has like hoarder levels of stacked newspapers everywhere, we pan around while we hear the voice of John Highsmith pleading, let her go, let her go. And there's crying. And then Mary Kay Highsmith screams loudly. And we pan around a corner and we see Allworth calmly watching or at least listening to the videotape. John continues to shout, let her go. And Mary Kay cries and screams again as John calls her name. A VCR display shows that it's actually recording. And then we see Allworth eject a tape and he pulls off the erasure tab and he walks away with the cassette and the TV just shows static. So it looks Ooh. like he was making a copy of the tape. Oh. Yeah. So a mailman delivers the mail to Emerald Shores Realty and he hands the mail to Beverly Bunn, who has a desk right near the door. Which seems weird to me, but Tori has an explanation for that. We'll get to it in a minute. Yeah. And so they have like, you know, polite little exchange and he leaves and she starts going through the mail and there's a padded envelope mailer and it's got a video cassette in it. So she opens it up. It's kind of like curious. Maybe someone sent some video of their home they want to sell or something. And so she's going to see what this is. Yeah. Whatever she was doing, apparently this video cassette was more important because she just stops and like, I'm going to watch this tape. So. <laughs> I don't know. If someone sent me a video, maybe I would she was do waiting the for an thing. alien autopsy tape and she thought that was it. <laughs> I mean, yes, twenty nine ninety five plus shipping, and it finally arrived. It's just like, oh man, I gotta watch this. Yeah, gotta watch this now. It was thirty bucks. <laughs> so she pops it into the video unit in the corner, and we see the video is at odd angles, maybe upside down, but it appears to be someone walking through a home. Her face changes as the video shows John and Mary Kay bound. And John is in a chair and Mary Kay's on the floor and both are struggling. And John says, let her go. And he yanks futilely at his bonds. And we can kind of make out through her cries that Mary Kay is saying, my baby, my baby. And so, yeah, it's pretty awful tape to have to see, to be honest. Yeah. So, Tori, tell us about this real estate agent having what appears to be like, to me, it seems like she's sitting at the desk where you would have like, the receptionist in the real estate office because there are other agents we can hear them in the background talking yeah so it's not like this is just her business so well my guess us. would be most real estate agents like some brokerages and stuff it's even like a perk to get to work the front desk and that's because real estate is all about getting clients like you have to have people who let you sell their home or let you show them homes to buy and act as their agent if you want to be a real estate agent. That's the hardest part of the job, honestly. And it's the part that I'm, I'm not a salesperson and there is a lot of sales in that job, not just of houses, but you have to like sell yourself to clients. Um, that is not a skill set that I have. It's not, that's why I don't do that job. But and you are a puppet master. I do the behind the scenes stuff because I don't want to do that job. And, you know, I Pull love- the string. I love helping people buy and sell homes. I don't, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not a salesperson anyway. So I would imagine that having your desk closer to the door is actually kind of like a perk and you probably maybe have to earn that because then you're the first one who can greet people when they walk in and you can introduce yourself and like, 
you know, kind of start selling them on you and your brokerage and why you're the best agent for them. And so I think that's probably why it's not a receptionist. It's her because that's part of the job is to greet people and be like, oh, you're looking to sell your house. Well, let me tell you how we can do that, you know, and kind of walk them to your desk. And okay. That's what I would guess. Yeah. Because that was just weird to me. Like, because you can hear there's other people in the office. So, yeah. I was like, why is she just like at the desk? Like, or maybe they take turns at the front desk. And so getting to work at the front desk is like, you know, you get to work it on Monday and someone else works it on Friday. Oh, maybe that would be more equitable, I would think. Because otherwise, you think the people in the background are just talking shit about her. Like, look at her (laughs) flirting with the mailman at her fancy front desk. Maybe she sold the most homes this month. Who knows? Right. Like, I don't know. Because she's got the front desk. (laughs) Of course she is. A self fulfilling (laughs) prophecy. I mean, it's not wrong, so I don't know. (laughs) So then we flip the point of view and we see that it's Bob, Giebelhaus, and Frank watching the tape. And we cut back to the video and John has flipped his chair and he looks up as a figure enters the frame holding a hatchet. And Mary Kay cries out and then the video goes to static. So at least they don't have to watch that part. Although, God, how freaking awful. Yeah, so it's not a full-on snuff film. So that's good. But yeah. And Bob asks Frank, why send it to the real estate agent? And Frank says to terrorize her, maybe, or to punish her the way he punished the family for some twisted imaginary crime. And Bob says, the clock's ticking, isn't it? And Frank says, yes. Bob says the word's going to get out. And Frank says that may be what he wants. And whatever Bob can do to not give him what he wants, the better chance they have to draw him out and catch him. Bob says they keep beating around the bush about the little girl. Frank shakes his head and says, can't do it, Bob. And he leaves. So he is siding with his wife, Catherine, and saying that we're not going to interrogate this child. Yeah. So then we see a man walking down a leafy sidewalk and he stops at a for sale sign and it reads Linda Lee Hill Properties. And the agent's name is Paul Grinnell. And the man is Allworth. And as he approaches the house, He's practicing a greeting. He's like, hi there. How are you? And he like says it like two or three times as he's walking up to the house. Inside the house, Grinnell, the agent, says, hi there. How are you? As Allworth enters. And Allworth is like, fine. How are you? And Grinnell's like, good, good. And he invites Allworth in and says they have wine and cheese. And he tells him, like, feel free to look around. And he hands him a brochure. And Allworth says that he had hoped he could get a tour. And Grinnell's like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Let's start with the upstairs. And Allworth is like, well, I have a question first. Does this house have a security system? And Grinnell says it does. Very sophisticated. The very best. Motion detectors in every room. And they go and stand in front of where the motion detector is up in a corner. And then Allworth is like, can you demonstrate it for me? And Grinnell's like, uh, yeah, if I can remember how. And then he leaves. And Allworth just stares up at the motion detector in the corner. And then we see flashes of the child screaming and they're intercut with what looks like a red hot branding iron. That's an X. And then we see red smears that form an X. And again, none of these flashes seem good. Uh -uh. No. And then it's commercial. And then we come back from commercial and we see the same motion detector that he was looking at, except now it's dark. And we hear police band chatter. And then a flashlight illuminates the detector. And we see that Bob is holding the flashlight. And he's looking around the home. And then Frank comes up to him. 
And Bob is like, state-of-the-art security system. And the son of a bitch walked right past it. And Frank is like, how? And Bob's like, we don't know. Our guys are the ones who actually tripped it when they got a 911 call and showed up. Report of a break-in. And Frank is like, have you heard it? And Bob's like, no. And Frank says, well, you may have a recording of the killer's voice. And then as they leave, Frank says he may want to run the keypad for Prince. And Bob is like, yeah. And then he's like, wait, are you telling me you think he knew the alarm code? And Frank says either that or it wasn't activated. And Bob says he shot the wind point blank with a 12 gauge shotgun. She had the panic switch in her hand. And Frank says, well, that could have been staged. And it probably was. And Bob is like, so he killed her? And then he called 911? Like, she's divorced? There's no kids in the house? It's a whole new pattern. And Frank is like, did you find the murder weapon? And Bob's like, not yet. So Frank says the killer takes chances, but everything is planned, almost scripted. What to leave? what to take, what he wants them to see, what he wants others to see. And he's leaving a record of the events, videos, 911 calls, witnesses. Bob sighs and like turns and is looking at the keypad. And then Frank looks down because they've walked outside at this point. And he picks up the welcome mat and underneath is an X, most likely in blood. Oh, yep. That's creepy. Like I said, nothing good. No, nothing no. Good. X marks the spot. <laughs> if you stand there, then like a trap door and then like <laughs> land on a mattress and you're like, oh, my God, it's Professor Hyde. And then or Mr. Hyde, Professor Jekyll. And then the maid comes in and dust and it makes it dirty and it's all messy. But anyway, <laughs> taking this way too far. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> anyway, then Catherine is looking at Patricia's drawings as Patricia draws. And she asks her what she's drawing. And Patricia lets her see the picture. And it has like these images of red X's on it. And like, so do her other drawings. They have like red X's in them. And then Catherine asks if in the drawing, those are her friends. And Patricia nods. And Catherine tells her that her friends will be really happy when they can see her again. And Patricia says she wants her mommy and daddy. And Catherine is silent, but she reaches out and she strokes Patricia's hair and Patricia looks down. She's sad. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, I know. She's sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. So in his basement office, Frank is watching a copy of the videotape on his computer. And it goes to static and he leans back and he rubs his face. Then something clicks and he leans forward and he freeze frames the video on a part of the opening when the camera is like haphazardly filming a path through the house. In a reflection on a glass door, he zooms in and does a little enhance, enhance, and he prints off a reflection of Allworth in a three-quarter view. His phone rings just as he hits the print button, and it's Bob. He tells Frank that the camera that was stolen just turned up in a pawn shop up in Bellingham. He tells Frank the camera that was stolen turned up in a pawn shop up in Bellingham. The clerk is downtown right now working with an identikit artist. Frank says he might have something to help with that. He just pulled something off the videotape. 
the Millennium Group has someone who can probably clean it up for them. They may have a face. And a second or two passes, and Bob asks if he's still adamant about not showing anything to the girl. Frank turns the receiver from his mouth. Bob says his name because he's not responding. And Frank puts the receiver back to his mouth, and he says he's considering it and then hangs up. Yep. So upstairs in the kitchen, Catherine and Jordan come home, and Benny is there. Yay! Benny is getting bigger and bigger. Benny is I'm not even sure if that's the same dog anymore. Benny is big. Jordan is like, hi, Ben. And then she's like, daddy's home, because Frank has come upstairs. And she runs over to him, and he picks her up, and he's asking about her day. But then Catherine is like, first, Jordan has to take a bath. So Jordan runs upstairs, and then Catherine shows Frank some of the pictures that Patricia drew. And she's like, I don't know what they mean, but I think they might be significant. And he looks at them, and he says they are. They found a similar mark at one of the crime scenes. And Catherine is like, how could she know about that? And Frank doesn't know. Maybe something she saw, something he was wearing. He says they've made some progress, too. And he shows her the printout of Oliver's face. And she's like, are you asking for my permission? And he's like, I am. And I don't think that they will. And she's like, it doesn't matter. I can't stop them. But my response is the same. And then he's like, well, what if you showed it to her? And Catherine's like, what is she going to say? And he says, maybe she knows him. Maybe it's a neighbor. Or someone the family knows. So then she's like, all right, I'll do it if you think it's the only way. But then Frank has been like looking through Patricia's drawings and he has a flash and he sees the smeared red X that Allworth saw. And then he sees Patricia huddled in the vent. And then he sees someone like putting the vent cover on like from the outside. And then the child that we saw screaming in the opening is screaming in a similar opening. And someone puts a vent cover on that one. And then he sees Patricia's eyes up close and like the entire time there's like a child screaming through his mm -hmm. flashes. And then he's like, no, that's what he wants. And Catherine's like, what are you talking about? And Frank says, that's what he's wanted from the beginning for them to use her. He picks up the phone and he dials. And then as it's ringing, he tells Catherine the video, the audio tape, bringing those to her would be an obvious tack they would use. He wants her to relive it probably something that he's relived his entire life. And Bob answers the phone and Frank's like, no one can go see the girl. He wants Bob to promise. And Bob is like, but she's the key. And Frank says, yeah, she is, but not in the way they think. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. She's mm. the key master. Vince Clorto. <laughs> so then... Police have found the shotgun. It was dumped in a garbage can near a school. And actually some kids found it and the crossing guard called it in. Ooh. So one of the arriving officers goes to question the crossing guard. And we see that the crossing guard is all worth. <gasps> and his red safety vest has a large yellow X on it. And he says he'll be glad to answer any questions as soon as he brings these children to safety. And then he goes out into the street with his stop sign and he signals the children across the street. And then a SWAT team bursts down the door of an apartment that's full of stacks of newspapers and no one is there. And Bob says to get the tech guys in and get all the video cassettes tagged and sent to his office ASAP. 
So that night in the public safety building, Bob asks Frank if he thinks that the guy's long gone. And Frank says, not from the city. Bob says two hours earlier and the cops who took his report would have seen his picture because now they know he was the crossing guard, right? So Mm -hmm. they would have seen his photo. They would have known it was him. Frank says he's running now to gloat, to plan, to show them how smart he is. Bob says he doesn't care how smart he is. They put his picture in the paper. He won't be able to cross the street without starting a parade. Frank says if they make him too famous, he's going to disappear altogether. They have five days until Saturday. Five days to anticipate how he'll up the ante. Bob asks if he thinks he'll hit another family. Frank says he's teaching them a lesson about their pretenses of safety, about how vulnerable we are. Frank says he wanted that little girl to relive his nightmares. How do you increase the stakes? Bob says, by making all of us relive it. (gasps) So I guess he's killing on Saturday. Is that what we're assuming is happening now? They they, they never mentioned that, but that's what it sounds like is happening. It sounds like because if he's going to open houses, they're usually on the weekend and then hiding in the home. Mm, okay. Presumably it's happening on set. Yeah, that's the only mention we get of that. So I just I'm assuming that's what they is going on. So then it's night, and Frank is sitting outside on the steps of the yellow house. And Catherine comes out and is like, I couldn't find you. And she sits down next to him and he says he needed some air. And so this scene, I condensed it down to one sentence, which <laughs> is they have a Things have changed. My grandparents never locked their doors. Look at us now. Kind of conversation to emphasize the focus of like how we do ourselves into feeling safe and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So, yeah. Locks and fancy alarm systems and all that stuff. Yeah. And then Allworth is driving at night and he sees a sign for a housing division. He stops and rolls down his window to look at it. It says Ivy Meadows, designer family homes, secure comfort lifestyles. He rolls his window back up and he drives away. Oh, it's commercial. So we come back and we see a security company car driving down the street as kids ride by on their bicycles. And there's a woman walking past a sign for an open house. And a couple enters the house and the agent greets them and they begin a tour. And they walk past Giebel House and he's talking into his coat. He's like, just some looky lose. So not subtle, Giebel House. No. Nope. Anyway, <laughs> elsewhere, Bob talks into a radio and tells him to make himself at home. It could be a long day. And then Frank asks Bob if any of the other houses have checked in. Bob says no. Maybe they scared him off. And he doesn't think it's going to work. And Frank just looks at him. And then someone enters the house. And Giebel House is watching the guy in a mirror. And he's talking into his coat. He's all entryway white male tall glasses can't tell if it's our guy so frank says like give him lots of space so bob relays the message and giebel house confirms the order and then we see the man and he asks the agent if this is the model home and she says yes but the contractor and his family are living there currently and he's like oh it hardly seems lived in at all and then giebel house talks into his coat and tells him if it is him He's heading right for them. <laughs> and then we see Bletcher pull his gun and the man approaches the door and is asked, like, does this go to the garage? And she's like, yes, through the washroom. But when he gets to the door, it's locked. And the agent apologizes. She says the owners locked their cat in and she doesn't have a key. 
this scene confused me because obviously they're behind the door waiting for the mm-hmm. dude to get in, but then the door is locked. Was like, how is he supposed to get in so you can nab him if the door is locked? I don't know if that was a mistake or what. I but... think they're there to kind of catch him if he shows up, but they have the door locked so that he can't get in, and they're just preparing in case he manages to somehow get it open. Yeah, I'm know. just wondering, like, why do they? Yeah, I'm not sure. This, this I don't know. It's not me. completely clear. Yeah. yeah, and also up until this point. I honestly could not tell if that was all worth or not because he's wearing like kind of like aviator kind of like tinty glasses and like you only see him from the back and like he has like an affectation in his voice usually when he's talking. So I was not sure if it was actually him, but it turns out that it obviously is him when we see him up close. Mm-hmm. So Giebelhaus had been following them at a distance and when all worth turns, he makes eye contact with Giebelhaus, who not so smoothly, like, just like, oh, and then, like, goes into another room. I know. So, yeah. Yeah, the best course of action would have just been to, like, nod at the guy and be like, yep, I'm also looking at this house and keep going. But, yeah, not smooth. So, Allworth smiles and says that it's okay. He'd like to see the upstairs. So, he and the agent go upstairs. And then Giebelhaus radios that and everyone comes out of the room and heads upstairs. And then Giebelhaus gets up there and he asks the agent where the guy is that she was with. And she says he's in the bathroom. And they burst in, but the bathroom is empty. And there's a window open. And Bob is like, check the bedrooms and all the closets. And Frank is like, he's gone. I was like, damn it, Giebelhaus. Like, they said <laughs> lots of space. Like, why are you following so close? Like, you're I a lovable know. lug and everything. But damn it, what are you doing? I know, I know. He's like trailing, and he's so awkward the entire time. Like it's so obvious that he's. It's just like he keeps pulling up the coat, of, the collar of his coat. Hey, like it's just I know. It's like, dude, dude, not subtle, not subtle. Yeah. Again, this also does confirm what we talked about previously. I don't know if we're going to see people again. I think they've kind of merged that, and just Giebel House is like not necessarily bumbly, but almost like comedy relief kind of like harvey mm-hmm. bullet kind of like character in the show so yeah i think yeah. so i think that's sort of where they've gone with him and he's just one guy now yeah so then it's night and bob is radioing in via patrol car no vehicle was found he may have come on foot and left the same way he tells frank he's gone but frank disagrees he's there bob says they've been looking for five and a half hours he's gone But Frank tells him to get the blue and whites out of here. Clear everyone out. Then he and Bob will go for a walk. So Bob radios Giebel house and he tells him to send everyone home. Yeah, because apparently Seattle PD has blue and white police cars. So Yes, and these actually are, when I first moved to Seattle, like in the early 2000s, this is what the Seattle police cars looked like. They were blue and white. And those are the real police cars. So they are using... If not the real cars, they have designed them to look exactly like the cars. Yeah, they've got some cars that are painted and slapped logos Mm -hmm. on them and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it is very accurate because that is what the police cars used to look like. I don't think they still look like I mean, Seattle's not that far from Vancouver, so they could have, you know. Yeah, they could have borrowed a couple cars. I don't know. But that that is exactly how they looked. So. So Bob and Frank walk the neighborhood. Frank hears a dog and he sees a dog pawing at a door trying to get in. So he calls Bletcher over and Bob's like, what's up? And Frank points to the dog and then the dog turns to them and barks, but it's kind of like a, Hey, I, I can't get into my house bark. You know, like he's, he's kind of like, eh. yeah, and- <laughs> come on me in so I can fuck up the dude who locked me out before he kills my family. Yeah. 
So Bob apparently keeps dog treats in his pocket. And so he gives one to the dog to quiet him. And then he pulls his gun. Yeah, he's got screwdrivers. He's got dog treats. He's just got, he's got a utility belt or something going on. He's Bob got is it. He's prepared. <laughs> Must have been a Boy Scout. He's always Must have ready. Been. <laughs> always be prepared, son. Always be prepared. Meanwhile, Frank has gone around the house and through a gate. So a backer side door is open and Frank enters. Bob also goes around and through the gate and the dog follows. Inside, Frank sees the security panel and the security panel reads door ajar section five. Above the panel is a photo of the family, a husband, wife and young boy. He sees flashes of the boy from the opening screaming again, followed by adults in bed screaming and a gunshot. He swallows and heads upstairs. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing the door ajar is like the one he came in, probably. Yeah, I would, I would assume. So, yeah. So Bob enters the house through the open door and Frank reaches the top of the stairs. He hears what sounds like muffled cries as his mouth are gagged or taped shut. So he enters the room and he finds the adults bound and gagged on the bed. And so they say, like, look out behind you. Obviously, they're gagged, but. Nick says yeah. they do a good job because you can understand them despite the gag. So, yeah, I don't know that you can understand them, but you can definitely like through their like emphasis and like intonation. You can tell they're like, hey, hey, turn around. There's someone behind you because like it's not just like, <laughs> oh, let me go. Let me go. There's like some emphasis there. So, yeah, Frank, however, does not pick up on that, but he does see movement in a reflection and he turns, but he's too late. Because all of Warth hits him with what looks like an axe handle, maybe. I'm not sure. It's like a big chunk of wood or something. Yeah. And Frank falls, and then all Warth smacks him a couple of times with it and then tries to run. But the dog is already upstairs, and he pulls in a nook and jumps on him and pushes him, not into a bathtub, but over a railing. And he falls, ah, and he crashes through a glass table onto the floor below. And I was like, yeah, good dog. Good job. Yeah, good dog. Yeah. So Bob races upstairs calling for Frank. And he sees Allworth bleeding all over the floor. So I guess it's a three-story house because <laughs> it does go upstairs. But then the dude fell down and landed. So I guess it's a big-ass giant man. Jesus Christ, people. How much space do you need? Jimmy Christmas, anyway. <laughs> I know. I don't understand. I don't understand anyone who God. needs, like, so much. But, you know, hey, I don't know. Maybe big family. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, Frank stumbles from the bedroom. And he looks down. And the dog is there sniffing around Allworth, maybe thinking about drinking some blood. Not sure. Don't know. Bob looks up and is like, are you okay, Frank? And Frank is like, yeah. And Allworth is bleeding out, but he is conscious. He's doing like, uh, 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 and you kind of see his eyes like flickering. And Bob is like, well, maybe one of us should call a paramedic. And Frank is like, do you remember the number? Bletcher's like, not offhand. <laughs> But then Frank is like, I'll call. And he turns and leaves. So he goes back. So, I mean, you could probably maybe take your time and untie the people first before you call. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a fine line there between like letting someone die. But then also, I mean, you caught him red handed. So, you know, anyway. So in a hospital, Frank is sitting in a waiting chair in the hallway. And Bob walks up and says he heard the little girl is going to a foster home. And Frank is like, yeah, Catherine checked it out. And is making sure she gets the care she'll need. Bob sits down next to him. And he's like, kids, they survive. And Frank is like, yeah, with monstrous exceptions. 
And then Bob is like, that guy we caught, his parents shipped him out. He watched his aunt and uncle tortured by some farmhand. Tragedy begets itself. And then Frank is like, until the circle is broken. Bob is like, makes you wonder. But then Frank is like, killers aren't born, Bletch. And then he sees Jordan and Patricia coming out of the children's ward, and they're walking hand in hand. And Patricia is carrying her little white stuffed bear. And Frank gets up and walks over to meet them. And Jordan is like, that's my daddy, pointing to him. Frank smiles, and then he kneels down in front of them. And he calls them a couple of angels. And then he asks Jordan where mommy is, and she points back to the ward. So Bob tells Frank that it's fine. He can walk them to the car. And then so Frank is like, go ahead. And so they walk over to Bob. Bob stands up, and he's like, ladies? And then he takes them each in one hand, and the three of them walk down the hallway. And as they're walking, he looks down at Patricia's bear and he's like, that's a nice bear. And she's like, thank you. And then Frank finds Catherine in the ward and she's standing over the bed and the tag still says Patricia Highsmith, ID 29712. And she's crying and she turns because she hears Frank come in and he walks over and takes her hand. And then after a moment, they embrace and then they leave the room holding each other around the waist and taped on the window are all the drawings that Patricia made representing the horrible things that she witnessed. Then it's the end. Oh. Kind of sucks. They had to put her in foster. I guess no relatives. They had to put her in yeah, I guess care. she doesn't have relatives or at least none who want her. I don't know the situation. Obviously, we don't learn her whole family history, but yeah, yeah, mm. it's a bummer. I mean, it could be. I mean, mm, I kind of. I worked in a kid's home for the state and it was like the last, like when all the other places would not take you, they came to where I worked basically. And so like foster care is kind of like, uh, you hear like horror stories about foster mm-hmm. care all the time. But I mean, there's a lot of good foster. You hear about the horror stories all the time, but there's, you know, so it's kind of, I know I just have this, when I hear foster care, I just automatically flinch. So yeah. And because of that history that I have, I am so glad that we unintentionally, just because I was, I could not finish writing both summaries in time. I am so glad that we split these last two episodes up because I don't know that I could have handled them back to back. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot back to back. It's both very like awful stuff. This, this episode reminded me a lot of like the golden state killer, which it's not, not really that similar but just the whole like being in people's homes and murdering couples and then yeah especially when you hear the early stories of like when he was in visalia and stuff Mm -hmm. and then i mean obviously you progressed from that but yeah yeah just like just in the freaky like getting in and casing the place first and that kind of thing and then Mm -hmm. bludgeoning people so there were some similarities obviously not not a one for one but and that, that may have been intentional too i mean at the time obviously we didn't know who he was so we just knew like the crimes yeah so pretty horrible stuff though it's definitely terrifying and it's one of those things where like you know like they say oh he's trying to make us know we're not safe and like i mean that's really terrifying because you know you want to feel like you're safe at home and there's no one hiding in your closet and that's just really awful so yeah Yeah. this well hmm, maybe maybe in kaboom the five two two six 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 episode 
he like his rationale wasn't like super worked out. Either. I mean, we had like why he did what he did, but it wasn't. I mean, mainly it was just he wanted to be famous, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say that this guy is probably the least fleshed out of our killers. Maybe um, he definitely. I mean, you kind of do get a little bit, but it's not. There's not a lot of time spent on him so much as the crimes. Mm-hmm. But clearly, you know, was, you know, as a kid witnessed this horrible murder and now is like recreating. Yeah. Situation. I mean, I guess Dead Letter, the killer guy, isn't that fleshed out either. Yeah. Like why he's doing it. So, yeah. So maybe, yeah. So maybe he actually he might be. But we, I think we spend more time with that killer than we do with this guy. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But well, yeah, that guy not... did like speak a lot. Whereas this guy, we don't get a lot of like his perspective on things we just kind of see his crimes and then we see like just going through the motions of like in the houses being like i'd like to see like can you please show me how to disarm the security (laughs) system sure it's the security system what the (laughs) hell oh my god (laughs) yeah i can't imagine most people would do that but yeah i don't know i mean you don't the problem is like it's just in those situations, you know, you're thinking, oh, I'm trying to sell this house. Like, not that you shouldn't be thinking about those other things. You, you almost expect the guy to be like, oh, what are you planning on breaking in and robbing the place? Pokey, right. Pokey, like, yeah. Like, make a little oh joke God. about it. But yeah, I don't know that you should ever show someone how to use. You can just say, oh, well, you know, they'll teach you how to use it if you buy the house or whatever. You know, it's very advanced. I don't know how or something, you know, you bag yeah. off and show them the features in the kitchen. Oh. So anyway. Yeah. And I got to say, like, people have a lot of anxiety about open houses because it is people just kind of traipsing through your house showings, too. But those are usually like with a real estate agent, whereas there's an agent at an open house. But if there's enough people, like, obviously, that can be a little nerve wracking. And so that is one of those things that's just like an anxiety. So this is obviously like not likely to happen, but obviously absolute worst case scenario (laughs) that someone's in your house casing it for a crime and then like murders you and your family. Like that's terrifying. So, yeah, I mean, as a lifelong and probably continuing lifelong renter and not homeowner, because I'm not a millionaire. I guess I I never think about that. I just always like in my head, I'm like, obviously when you go look at a place, it's empty, right? Like there's no one there, but unless you are like, super 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 rich yeah you're gonna probably be living in the place when you sell it because you yeah probably because you can't afford a second house or i mean you you, there are ways to do that and there are bridge loans you can get where you can like kind of borrow against your equity so you can buy the new place and then sell it once you're out so there are so there are ways and then then most of the sell costs go to the yeah yeah depending on your equity and depending on your situation you know whatever but yeah in a lot of cases to move, you have to sell your house and to sell your house, you have to continue to live in it while there are showings, which is really hard because you have to keep the place like immaculate and mm-hmm. a little bit staged. And yeah, it's really stressful. And then it's stressful because you have strangers in your house and people are always worried. Like, what you know, what should I do with my stuff? Like, where should I put my prescriptions? Cause you know, people are going to open all your stuff. And so like, it's just, although they're apparently not going to check your kid's closet. Yeah. But... Which is weird. Cause people do check the closets almost all the time. So I guess that guy lucked out that they didn't open the closet and be like, what are you doing in here? You creep. Get out of the kid's yeah. closet. Yep.
So reading about this episode, much like in the well-worn lock, I am not on team Robert Sherman again. I am probably on team Zach Hanlon, though. I went through and read his AV Club article on the episode. Although he does seem to have like some of the same hangups that Emily St. James has. Like he mentions at one point, he's like, oh, are Frank and Catherine flirting in this episode? Oh, my God. We might actually get some sexual tension in this marriage. And I'm like, like, grow the fuck up. Like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's just, yeah, I don't get it. It's just like, I don't know. It's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have this like. I probably have the same opposite complaints about the X-Files sometimes about like, I don't care about this stuff that you guys are doing, but I realize like, that's fine. People like that. It's not for me. I still complain about it, but it's like, this doesn't even seem like it's not for me. It's just like, that's not how real people act. And I'm like, have you ever been around people who aren't your own age? Like what the hell? But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how old Zach Hanlon and Emily St. James were when they wrote their recaps. I don't know. Yeah. No I don't know. I don't, I see, I guess because maybe I'm older too. And obviously like I'm not in any kind of romantic relationship at all, purely 100% by choice. But like, to me, that seems like a really healthy relationship because they are having, and some of their conversations are very Chris Carter-esque, right? Like they're over the top. Yeah. They're a little, little lesson-y. There's some, there's some morals and, you know, theme of the episode stuff that they talk about. That's, you know, it just is how it is. But to me, it just seems as a very, like, it seems like a very healthy adult relationship. Like we're talking, we're not constantly, like you have said, they're not constantly playing grab ass. They're not constantly like, right. making out. And also we're not like 24 hour surveilling to them. Like we right. don't see what goes on when we're, in, when they're not on camera. I mean, come yeah. on. I mean, and I'm, I'm just, guessing yeah. that, yeah, I'm obviously the characters I'm sure are intimate. I'm sure we don't see a lot of that, but we do see them like, you know, touching and talking and being close. And so like, there's not, you know, not a lot of sexual intimacy, but they are intimate. They are close. And so, like, I don't know, to me, it just seems like they're a married couple who knows each other. Real, They know each other very well. And they just, yeah, we're seeing their conversations about their jobs, which are not sexy and would be a yeah. weird time to start making out. It would be weird. No, let's talk about like, this missing traumatized child and then let's start. And, yeah. When you're like <laughs> going you know, at after, like... <laughs> after a while, like, yeah, it's not that you don't go and play grab ass and touch people and, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. But it's like you're not doing it constantly because then what is your relationship based on? Like, is there nothing else that you're doing? Like what if you spend all your time just doing that? Like what's going on in your life? I don't understand. But yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't know. It's just, I mean, it's just weird. They, have, right? they both really have a thing about that. And I'm like, what is your deal? Like, I don't get it. But yeah, I'm guessing part of it is that a lot of couples you see on TV are very touchy feely, very whatever. You know, there's a lot of like sexual tension and romantic tension. Well, I would also imagine and, a lot of couples you see on TV are younger than yes. Frank and Catherine. That's well, the thing. and even yeah. And if they're supposed to be together, like the thing is, like the show isn't about their relation i mean their relationship plays a big part of it but it's not about their relationship falling apart or you know them drifting apart because of his job like so many of these kinds of procedurals the relationship suffers because like the husband usually whoever the investigator officer is doesn't tell his wife anything and keeps secrets and pushes her away and so there's that kind of relationship tension whereas this one like that isn't really happening so they're just having conversations about work and it's fine yeah 
I know. Yeah. Some one of the th- some of the things like Robert Sherman was complaining about was like, oh, and Frank and Catherine are conveniently on the same like side as whether they should interview the kid. I'm like, how is that like convenient? Like what? Like they don't believe the same things. Why would you like? I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah, because just- generally when you're married, I mean, again, never been married, but I'm assuming that when you're married to someone part of that is because you have very fundamental similar core beliefs. I mean, obviously you're not going to agree on everything, but you probably have the similar values and stuff. So obviously like protecting children is important to both of them. They have a child. (laughs) Of course they're going to agree on that. They're in slightly similar careers in a Mm -hmm. way. I mean, she's not a cop or anything, but like, you know, she deals with people who are like having issues and, he kind of does too just unfortunately a lot of times they're dead mm-hmm. and the issue is like find out who killed them but i mean yeah it's just it's just strange like just i don't know you just read some commentary i mean people can probably listen to the podcast too and be like you know damn that nick guy why can't he get over the fact that yeah. like well i can't but it's just it's just weird like you yeah. people people latch on to weird little things and you're like yeah. well, i don't especially if you don't just if you disagree with them then you're definitely like what's wrong with you why can't you yeah i mean everyone's got their weird things i'm sure like you say people listen to this podcast are like wow why is tori always hung up on this or why is nick always yeah. rambling about I this i did notice i was reading the zach hanlon thing and obviously i've talked about how i want to go through and compare their av club articles to the book right but I'll, i can only do that with the x files because they don't have a million book but i did notice in this one because this is where i was really first like actually looking at the av club articles as opposed to just reading the book there's a lot of like attempts at making jokes like puns and stuff when they're talking about the episodes too and i'm like that didn't work what are you talking about and then just <laughs> some of their comments too like he talks about like oh like the killer is so lazy with his name choices like Travis Bickle is from Taxi Driver and the other two are just made up names. And I'm like, how is that lazy? Like, because he used one made up name. You don't mention the fact that like there's Abraham Lincoln and, you know, Muhammad Ali and Elvis Presley. Like what? I don't, I don't, I don't. Some of the comments are just like, what? What are you trying to, are you trying to just be funny for the sake of being funny? Edgy? I don't understand, but yeah. Well, I mean, it was the AV club, right? So probably there's probably some of that trying to be funny. You know, anyone who did blogging in the early mid 2000s will remember like trying to be funny. And I get, mean, they're doing it as a job like, and I'm fucking not. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, knows, I you know. I ran a geek girl blog and I blogged on, you know, I had a personal blog for a while. Like, that's really hard to get views. So you got to kind of try and be witty and funny and pull people in. It's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Roger R. Cross puts in his only role in Millennium as Officer Shaw. He's the one who shows up and then goes to interview Allworth as the crossing guard. Mm-hmm. So he's been in previous X-Files episodes, obviously. He's going to be in some more. He was in Fresh Bones, notably, that kind of thing. Glenn Turman plays James Glenn. This is, as I mentioned, this is James Glenn's only appearance in Millennium, which is kind of too bad because... I recognized him and I think he did a good job in the episode. He yeah. He's not going to come back. He was born in 1947 and has been acting since like 1961. So like way before I was born and he's still going like he's still acting. Some of his more prominent roles have been in 108 episodes of a different world. Oh, wow. Which I think is where I recognize him from because he seems familiar. He was also in 22 episodes of The Wire. He plays the mayor. I've never watched the wire so i don't know but apparently he did an awesome job in that people talk about him and then he's just been like in like 
all the things, right? I mean, he did like, you know, he was in Murder, She Wrote, and Matlock, and TJ Hooker. He's been in like all the stuff you would think, you know, mm-hmm. NCIS and that kind of stuff. So he's been in movies too. So nice. Lots of stuff. So, but I think he did a good job in this episode. Yeah, I think so too. Patricia Highsmith is played by Nevada Ash. And this is actually her only IMDb credit. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if her parents were like, nope, after this or what? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she tried. Maybe this was her like, let's try acting. And she didn't like it. I don't Yeah. Know. Well, at her age, I doubt she was like, I'd like to try acting. I'm sure it was like, you know, her parents. But yeah, yeah. let's have her try acting. And then they were like, nope, this isn't good. That's yeah. Not but obviously, because she's only in this, there's not like a bio really about her. So maybe she's like related to someone on the show. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Who knows? So, yeah. And then her father, John Highsmith is played by David Neal. He was in Piper Maru. He played a Navy security guard. And then he has an uncredited appearance in the very last episode of The X-Files in 2018. Wow. Bringing it home. So we will see him again much later. He was also like in Snakes on a Plane and Scary Movie and stuff like that. So he's he's got some credits too. Nice. So, yep. So, Tori. Yes. It is that time. Oh no. Yeah. That time. So I actually like this episode a lot. I feel like it's it's very scary to me because again, it's that like safety thing. Like you should be safe at home. And a like teaser. Whew. Yeah, the teaser is rough. Whoa. And and there's not anything rough in it. Like visually, there's nothing. That's no, like, but just the, just but the just mental, like, like thinking yeah. of what those people went through. Obviously, they're not real. But then, like, again, I think of like the Golden State Killer and those things and just like how awful that is. And just, yeah, it's, it's really horrific to me. So I think it's really scary. I also think this is the idea of someone like using open houses to scare homes is it is a scary thing. And it is something that people selling their homes actually do worry about it's it's an anxiety so i think that's playing on that anxiety a little bit plus the idea that like security systems will keep you safe but like obviously if the killers are already inside they can't do anything mm-hmm. so yeah i i liked it a lot i thought it was creepy i thought it was well done it the way it played out worked for me i didn't have any quibbles with it i think i'm going to give this one an 8 ooh 8 all right well i'm going to follow suit which is for me three eights in a row wow boom boom yeah so nice mm-hmm. yeah so we both liked this one this one was good we did um, yep i think the last one was good too i think it was just <laughs> very uncomfortable for me in other ways and i just did not enjoy it like this one yeah well was i mean scary it, but so. and it was uncomfortable but it was scary but I, you know i just thought the mystery with the pacing all of it worked a little bit better yeah well and then i mean it's that two sides of the coin thing it had some of that wow chris carter you did a good job and it had some of that wow chris carter did you have to do that so (laughs) yeah that episode was a good two sides of chris carter i think it did air more on the good side of chris carter as opposed to Mm -hmm. the you know blessing way side of chris carter but it was (laughs) what are you doing buddy side yeah still had a few so Yeah, yeah for sure yeah. All right. Eight and eight. Woo. Double eights. Boom. <laughs> that is only the second episode that we have given the same rating to because we oh. both give Kaboom a six. Oh, so, nice. 
Yeah, five two two six six six. Wow, I don't remember why I rated Kaboom. Kaboom so low, huh? I don't know. I'll we'll have, have to, to revisit that. We'll have to revisit that for our wrap up if we do. One. Yeah. All right. Well, hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope, like, somewhere along the way, you guys are actually watching these episodes too, because I have to say, I they're really good. Yeah. Millennium is, I don't know what I expected, but I'm enjoying it a lot more than I expected to enjoy it. So I don't, again, I don't know what I was expecting. But yeah. Robert yeah. Sherman, I don't know. I, here's the thing. I think, and I think this plays out in, well, maybe not so much with you, but with me, I think this shows that Millennium and The X Files are two different shows for two different audiences, uh-huh. even though they are created by the same person. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. Because like I said in the first episode, I'm sure when we watched the pilot as a kid, we were like, mm, nope, uh-uh. me and my brothers were probably like, no, thanks. Don't want to watch this. My mom clearly didn't want to watch it. Like, it's not something we continued to watch. Wasn't into it. Now, you know, I'm much older. My life has changed. I've gotten into other things. And I really do like procedurals. And I'm really digging this show. So, and I still love The X-Files, but it's a different type of show. Like, I wouldn't recommend this one. To people just because they like the X Files, I wouldn't say, yeah. "Oh, you like the X Files." And you I think watch that Millennium. is part of the thing when you're reading people who wrote about the X Files, also writing about Millennium. I think that's like I said, Zach Hanlon really liked this episode. He thought this one was great, but like Robert Sherman, who I usually kind of agree with, he was like, "Wow, it's really too bad that already this early in the season, Millennium is just like falling into a rut." And I'm like, "What? Like." <laughs> Like, have you, do you remember the first season of the X-Files when like they, you know, by this point they had like maybe three good episodes, depending on what you want to count. Like, I don't know, like, you know, a bunch of yeah. new ones. Like, I mean, X-Files kind of, I think, I think where X-Files did, they did a good job, whether intentionally or not, is that they managed to be like, we've got a good one. And then we've got a couple that are like, Ugh. and then we've got a good one. And we've got a couple that are like, and we've got a good one. And we've got a couple that are like, and they managed to space it out. So maybe you could not think of it as a rut, I guess. But I was like, what? What are you talking about? So, yeah. Yeah, it's just different audiences. Like you can like both, but they're definitely not like the ideal viewer is probably not generally the same person. Because for X-Files, I would recommend people watch like Supernatural or something, you know, if you like that kind of thing. Whereas with like Millennium, I'd be like, oh, well, then if you like dark serial killing, you should watch like this, you know, procedural show about, you know, like maybe uh, what's the one on Netflix? The um, oh, the Mindhunter is it? Yeah, it is Mindhunter. Yeah, like maybe you should watch Mindhunter or something. Like, you know, it's different audiences. I wouldn't. I maybe need to go back and revisit that. Like I said, I tried to watch Mindhunter and the first episode was just so boring. (laughs) It was just talky, talky, talky. And it's the first episode. And so, like, you know, our first episode isn't that good, honestly. So I should probably maybe shouldn't judge like by the first episode. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was really good. I really liked the cast, which I'm sure helped. And, you know, obviously. I've read like John Douglas's books and stuff. So I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. But like, yeah. Yeah. But go watch Zodiac or watch Manhunter. Yeah. Like I said, I prefer that to Silence of the Lambs, but I might be in the minority on that. I'm not sure. So <laughs> I don't know. 
All right. But anyhow, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We always appreciate it. And we hope you're enjoying our coverage of Millennium. And if you watch Millennium, whether you watched it when it first aired or you were just watching it now or somewhere in between, let us know what you thought. Yeah, or don't. Because like on X-Files, I still don't care. But I hope you're enjoying the show. I care. I want to know. I want to know. Tell me. <laughs> so. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs> I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy and Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And the truth is what we make of it by the Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us for the next Millennium Monday at episode 10, The Wild and the Innocent. And together, we'll try to figure out if If the the truth is still still out there. The truth is what we make of it. Thanks for listening. I don't give a shit what you think.
hey, if nothing else, I am on. It's true. Brand, it's true. Okay. I stick to brand. my guns. It's true. You do. No, it's fine. <laughs> you don't have to want to know. I'm just curious. I'd be curious to hear what people thought. I mean, I want them to like the episodes, but I don't right. care what they think about the show. No, like the Millennium Show. I don't care. That's because that's their opinion. Like what oh. they think has nothing to do with what I think. So, <laughs> and vice versa. Should true. Be the case. True.